<laughs> we're learning is uh, the most dramatic <coughs> part of Jewish history, I would say. Matan Torah and the building of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle. Uh, the connection between these two things is not immediately obvious, but in the Torah they are presented as being a necessary consequence. You receive the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu says to B'nai Israel, now build a Mishkan. And even though, even though uh, the, uh, we, don't, we don't point it out too much, but <coughs> it really doesn't make any sense. Because the Mishkan, which is really the Beit HaMikdash, like the portable version of the Beit HaMikdash, the Beit HaMikdash is very intimately connected to Eretz Yisrael and to a place in Eretz Yisrael. And the desert where the Jews were after Matan Torah, after Matan Torah, the, uh, the receiving of the Torah, <coughs> The desert was no place at all. I mean, that's the nature of, of the desert. It, it's not an address. It's for people who lack an address. For people who wander around. And uh, sometimes they're here and sometimes they're there. They're kind of in a place which doesn't support regular living. I realize that in modernity, uh, we've kind of uh, managed to change that. But in the olden days, certainly, and uh, the Medrashim all, all uh, approve of this position, and the Pirkei de Rabbi talks about it at length, <coughs> the desert was not really a place. It was a place being devoid of a place where the Torah was given. Right? You know that, that Matan Torah did not generate... Um, holiday that was connected to place. You don't go back to Har Sinai and look at it. Uh, uh, Jews never went to Har Sinai. I remember after the Six Day War, Rabbi Goren, Zichrono Lebracha, uh, took a tour. He took a group to Har Sinai, but it didn't catch on. That's not what people do. Har Sinai is the place we, we receive the Torah and the amazing thing is that we took the Torah away with us. That was the not that <coughs> to go back to Har Sinai to look for Torah. That's not the case. So back to the Mishkan. The Mishkan is an unreasonable thing. It's the desert version. It's the portable version. It runs against our notion of temple of Beit Hamikdash which is a permanent building in a particular place. And in fact, the Medrashim say that that place was, uh, <coughs> was established long before the temple was built. Right? Yaakov Avinu, Avraham and Yitzchak, all are connected to that place. And that's the place where you want to build the temple. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Moshe Rabbeinu, after Matan Torah, tell them, to build the Mishkan. Where? In the desert. No place at all. <coughs> How will it be built if we're traveling in the desert? It's going to be a remarkable, portable Mikdash. You'll be able to take it apart, move from one place to another, and then put it back together.
So the Mishkan has this innovative aspect to it, that it works in the desert. The Mishkan works in the desert. It's it's absolutely <coughs> remarkable, but counterindicated. I don't think we would have thought that the Mishkan should be built in the desert. We would have thought that the Mishkan uh, uh, we should wait until we come to Eretz Yisrael and there build uh, build the desert. Well, you know, it took 410 years between the entrance of Bnei Yisrael into Eretz Yisrael, right, 410 years, and the building of the Beit HaMikdash, so that even in Eretz Yisrael, the Beit HaMikdash was not uh, an obvious, was not an obvious result of entering. Well, 410 years. Yeah, well, uh, there was there was Yoshua and the Shoftim, and then until they got to David HaMelech, it took took 410 years. So I'd like to look at three psukim. I'd like to look at three psukim and try to, and the Rashi and try to uh, understand. The first pasuk on the, on the sheet is in our parasha. And it presents a certain kind of intrinsic difficulty. Vasui Mikdash. In other words, the beginning of the parasha of Truma. That's this week's parasha. Truma. God commands Moshe Rabbeinu to raise the funds to build the Mishkan. To raise the funds to build the Mishkan. And then, at the end of those two, three psukim, there comes this pasuk, right? It was as though to say, you better build a Mikdash in order that the reality of your stay in the desert changes. And what is that reality that's going to change? You, I will dwell in your midst. Uh, Rashi is sensitive to the anthropomorphic nature of this pasuk, which is vasuli mikdash, as though Hashem needs a mikdash or that he needs a place to be in all of that annoys Rashi. So Rashi says, Vasulishmi Beit Kedusha. You'll, you'll dedicate it to me. You'll dedicate this place that you are building to me, to HaKodesh Boch. <coughs> in other words, in other words, it seems that what the uh, Pasuk is saying, and what the Torah is saying, is that after Matan Torah, where Bnei Yisrael had this experience of God being in their midst, or they being in the midst of Matan Torah, that was what Matan Torah was, that that situation cannot change. And this is what the Ramban understood, and further explained by Rabbeinu Bechaya. Rabbeinu Bechaya was often a commentary on the Ramban. And Rabbeinu Bechaya explains that that the beta that somehow Matan Torah had become a treasure. Matan Torah itself, the event. And the event was not something that you went back to, but the event was something that you took away with you. Right? You were not it wasn't like Matan Torah happened in a place and you go back to that place and meditate on Matan Torah. 
But once having experienced the experience of Matan Torah, you can't do without it. You can't live without that experience to some extent. Not exactly the same, but something the same. And, and the Mishkan, which was a place for the dwelling of God, <coughs> and as you know, where was the, where was the Mishkan place? Where was the place of the Mishkan? The midst of B'nai Yisrael. The midst, right? In the middle of, in the actual middle of the world, there was this quadrant with three tribes on each side, and in the middle was the Mishkan. So the Mishkan was in the midst of B'nai Yisrael, literally. Literally. And you'll do, you'll make for my name, Rashi says. He doesn't like it to sound like he, that God needs it or that God wants it. <coughs> so he changes it around a little. But we understand what Rashi means. What Rashi means is that the Pesach is written correctly. It's not like Rashi is saying, oh, here's a Pesach that could use a little red marker and I'll fix it up. That's not what he meant. What Rashi meant was that the Pasuk is correct as it is, but it might be misleading to some. And the misleading aspect of it is that you think God needs something. Nevertheless, once you get over that, you understand that God doesn't, over, uh, doesn't need anything. You understand that Rasuli Mikdash means that, that the Mikdash, for my benefit, is very similar to the appearance of Kaddish Baruch Hu at Matan Torah on Har Sinai in the, the Arafel, in the Kavod, etc. That's the first Pasuk. The second Pasuk, going backwards, right, to the <coughs> to Mishpatim. Remember, we learned this Pasuk last week. Hinei Anochi Sholech Malach Lefanecha Lishomrecha Baderech Ulaviacha El Hamakom Asher Hachinoti so this, of course, is God talking to B'nai Yisrael, to Moshe Rabbeinu, B'nai Yisrael, about the trip to uh, Eretz Yisrael, the Eretz Kenan. The angel will go before you. We talked last week about this angel. But here, what I'm interested in is the end of the Pasuk. I will bring you to the place which I have prepared for you. Rashi correctly. Okay, you see the second part of the Rashi? The first part of the Rashi we saw last week. I, I, I made it ready. Zimanti. I, I called it forth. I have already prepared it. Zehu pshuto. Now, what's wrong with Pshuto? Obviously, the Rashi says there's something wrong with Pshuto. What's wrong with the Pshuto is that we don't know what, it, what it's talking about. When did God prepare this for us? When was this preparation? When did it take place exactly? Zeu Pshuto, Rashi says. U Medrasho. Medrasho. Medrash for Rashi. And it was in the technical, like sometimes Midrash means what Chazal say. But Rashi actually always depends on Chazal. He's never really an independent agent, except in grammatical matters, which I think I've mentioned several times. The Chazal were not so interested 
in grammar. The interesting grammar came to the Jews through the Arabs, who were very interested in grammar. And uh, it was very important to them, to the Arabs, <coughs> to, the, to the Quran scholars, to prove that the Quran was the outstanding example of Arabic literature. And one of the ways they did that was to prove that there was a very high level of consistency in the use of various grammatical forms in the Quran. The Quran did it right, so to speak. There weren't so many yotzim min haklam. Anybody who's ever been in a uh, day school, kind of elementary school, has spent a lot of time learning uh, grammar. They do that in elementary school because in spite of the fact that grammar is painful, and very painful for Americans who don't like it, you know, even before you tell them that there's such a thing, they don't like it. But besides the fact that grammar is painful, it also prevents the children from asking significant questions. <laughs> and teachers, the one thing that makes you into a teacher is that you're afraid of somebody asking you a real question. So grammar saves the day. Grammar says because it's painful, but it's neutral. Like, you know, what's the difference? But if you remember how it was when you learned grammar, you learned <coughs> that there were a lot of yotz in a cloud. There were a lot of exceptions to every rule, right? And so, uh, the word medrash in our language means something that Chazal said. It means that in Rashi's language as well. But Rashi thinks that pshat is also what Chazal said. So the difference between pshat and a medrash has to do with the flow of things. Pshat is the flow of the pasuk, and the medrash might be taking a word out of context and thinking about it. Like what might it mean? Just that word, uh, like a like a, a, a clause, a hidden clause in the pasuk. That's the medrash. So look at what Rashi says. Rashi says medrasho. My place is noticed opposite the place that I prepared for you. In other words, as Rashi says, <coughs> Rashi says, uh, This is one of the psukim she'omrim that tell us she'beta mitash Wow. In other words, Beit HaMikdash, heaven, is very much like, like the celestial world is like the terrestrial world. That if there's a Beit HaMikdash, a place for God in our world, that there's a place for God in that world. In fact, it's only because of that that the Mikdash or the Mishkan can be a place for God. I mean, what do you mean a place for God? We're talking about a place that meets with God's approval. <coughs> so Rashi says, that can only be because the Mikdash, I mean, this is something that is a large theological digression, but you have to understand that what Rashi <coughs> is building on is the fact that you could not have a place for God in our world if there was no similar place for God in the heavenly world. 
And so, Asher HaChinoti doesn't refer to the preparation that God made in our world, but it's about the preparation that God made in His, so to speak, in His world. <coughs> so look again. This is one of the psukim about which we say that Beit HaMikdash Omala Mechuvan Kineged Beit HaMikdash Omata. Okay? That's what that's what the pasuk means. Asher chenoti. So vasuli mikdash means vasuli mikdash and shachati b'tocham. Finish the world, the world which has to be a reflection of heaven. And in this case, we're talking about the beta mikdash, and that the beta mikdash has to reflect the heavenly situation. Now, the last of the three psukim to be aimo v'tita aimo b'har nacholatcha. This is one of the psukim at the end of what we call Shirat Hayam, right? Remember Shirat Hayam, So Shirat Hayam. Now what is Shirat Hayam about? What is the Shirat about? Shirat Hayam is a Shirat of Sheva, of thanksgiving to HaKadosh Baruch. Thanksgiving for saving us. Here we are, left Mitzrayim, and the Egyptians are running after us. We come to Yam Suf, and people didn't know what to do. And God said to Moshe, you know, speak to B'nai Yisrael, and just tell them to go, and everything will be fine. Everything was fine. And then they sang Shirat HaYam. It's about the Egyptians. The Egyptians were destroyed, they were denied. Praise of God. But in this Pasuk, in this Pasuk, to the Eimo, the Tita Eimo, let Lavi to bring, to, to plant, the Har Nachalatcha in the mountain of your dwelling, Machon, a place, the Shiftecha, Pa'alta Hashem. I mean, it's all a reference to the Beit HaMikdash in the future. And then it says it openly, Mikdash, Hashem kolenu yadecha. Mikdash, your hands, God, have prepared. Now, what is Moshe Rabbeinu talking about? We say this, we say this pasuk once a day, every day of the year. I mean, that's often. Now what is this Pasuk referring to? What Mikdash? And what, what is this? So, in another context, I once tried to explain <coughs> that Shevach, that Shevach is done most perfectly, so the praise of God is done most perfectly by prophecy by people who are on that level. That was Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. <coughs> and all of the Israel who saw this miracle of Kriyat Yamsuf, they were all of prophetic nature. They were like prophets, all of them. And so they had to have a prophecy. And the prophecy that B'nai Yisrael had in Shirat HaYam was this Pasuk, even though it was said by Moshe Rabbeinu, but everybody repeated it. Mikdash, Hashem Kodendu Yadecha. You, Hashem, we see it. We understand it. It's part of Shirat HaYam. 
Now look at what Rashi says. To the Amo, Nitnabe Moshe Shaloikanes La Aret, Lakachlo Neamar Tivi Enu. Right? The Tivi Amo means you will bring them and not you will bring us. Because Moshe Rabbeinu knew that he would not enter Eretz Israel. In other words, according to Rashi, even before I said what I said, okay, a thousand years later, even before I said what I said, Rashi says that Moshe Rabbeinu was acting not as the one who praises God and thanks God, but also as a prophet. There was a prophecy that Moshe Rabbeinu, we forget about that prophecy. Moshe Rabbeinu said, I'm not going to get to Eretz Israel. I'm not going to be there. <coughs> the Mem? It's what? A strange, it's a strange thing. The Mem. Why the letter Mem? It's, like a, it's a different form of who. Of who? Good. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, when you don't know what a word means in Chumash, you say it's Yotze Menachlal, or it's an old form. Which are both uh, uh, synonyms for I don't know. <laughs> so you could take either either position. I mean, I mean, I, I, I allow you to take either permission with what I said. If I don't understand it, I don't understand it. But this is like they call it old forms in, in grammar. The grammar guys. So, but the point that I'm making is that Rashi says Nitnabei. That there was a nevuah of Moshe Rabbeinu, a personal prophecy where he knew that he wasn't coming to Eretz Yisrael. Machon shiftecha, look at this. You see, machon shiftecha mikdashel mata mechuvan kenegik kiseishel mala asher pa'alta. You recognize this Rashi? Right, we just learned this in the Rashi that this is how it is. That the Beit Hamikdash, in order to be a place for God, had to somehow reflect the place for God in heaven. Like we always say, there's a kisei kavod, and there are angels, and there's a place, and there's a, this idea, and that is the Beit HaMikdash. The Malbim talks about that. What? The Malbim connects Briyat HaOlam and the Mishkan and the Beit HaMikdash, right? The Medrash also, before, also a thousand so years, a thousand years before. So the concept of connecting... <coughs> no, but this idea is unique to the Beit HaMikdash. It's true that Chazal connect. Briyat, Briyat Olam to the building of the Mishkan, oh, the, the different parts of the of the Mishkan. But this is not what Rashi is saying. Rashi is saying is that the idea of having a temple which is a place for God, not a place of worship, but a place of God. You went to the temple and God was there. That idea demands that it be a reflection of something that exists in heaven. That's what Rashi. That's what Rashi uh, uh, says. Mikdash. <coughs> you see, Mikdash. Shel acharav hamikdash asher kol nenu yadecha. Chaviv beit hamikdash. Shalom nivra biyad achat shenemar et yadi yasda aretz. Or mikdash b'shtei yadayim. Mikdash Hashem. The word yadecha, plural, as though God has two hands. So, so, so Rashi goes on and says, he quotes the, quotes the Medrash, Chaviv Beit HaMikdash, that we desire the Beit HaMikdash. The world was created by God using one hand. 
שנאמר הפסוק אף ידי סינגלר יסדה ארץ right built up the land created the earth the world ומקדש בשתי ידיים and the Beit HaMikdash בשתי ידיים so ואימתי יבנה בשתי ידיים and when is this happen this two handed creation בזמן שהשם ימלוך לעולם ועד which is the next פסוק השם ימלוך לעולם ועד when that happens then the, the, the creation of, with two hands will be completed right לעתיד לבוא שכל המלוכה שלו so again uh, uh, here Rashi connects the building of the Mishkan a place for God, a reflection of a place for God in heaven. Chaviv. <coughs> More important than anything else in the creation is the building of the Mishkan, the Beit HaMikdash. Who built the Beit HaMikdash? Who built the Mishkan? We built the Mishkan. In other words, we were shutafim, partners in creating the spitz, you know, the, the highest summit of creation, which is the place for God in Olam Hazen. I don't, have to, <coughs> I don't have to remind you, like, you know, if we're so inclined to look at Hasidus once in a while, you know, that the Rav Nachman of Bratzlev adopts the idea of the Arizal, that in order to create the world, God had to create a Halal Panui. A Halal Panui could be, to be translated as an empty space. The Arizal said it this way. He said, if God existed before creation and God filled everything, God was everything, then where exactly did God create the world? Because there was no place. So his answer is that God retracted himself from some place and into that new empty place created the, the world. Rav Nachman of Bratzlev loves that because it explains everything to him. If you'd ask that question, you know, how could there be a non-believer? How could there be somebody in the world who did not accept the existence of God? In the story, Rav Nachman asks it this way. How could somebody believe that he didn't have a mother or father. How could somebody believe that? So Rav Nachman's answer is, he must have fallen into the halal hapanu. It was, there is this place, or there is this idea about a place, the halal hapanui, <coughs> where God is not found. God is not there. Because God had to make room for the for the creation of the world. Rav Nachman says that if you have if you have superior insight, you would be able to know that in the Khalala Panui, even though it's Panui, God is also there. Rav Nachman liked that also. You know, it's the old uh, you know, if you learn if you learn Gemara, you have to like contradictions. You have to. If you don't like the contradiction, if you want everything to work out all the time they just think of another subject. But Gemara, you can only do it if you 
can live with the contradiction. Rav Nachman said, we can live with this contradiction. That since God is not in the Halal Panui, people fall into that empty space and their minds come up with all sorts of strange ideas. But if you're really, really thorough and you're able to look into it carefully, you'll see that even in the Halal Panui, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is to be found. So this is what <coughs> what it means that that this halal panui, what is going to make the availability of God known to everybody in the halal panui? That's us. We're in the halal panui. After all, we're the created we're the created world. What's going to make us is going to be the mikdash. Because the Mikdash is going to be a place where you're not going to be able to argue that God is found. It, it was the contradiction that doesn't, doesn't change. <coughs> it was, that's what faith is according to, according to Rabbi Nachman said. Oh, you have a kasha? Alright, you have a kasha. But faith trumps the kasha. It doesn't answer it. You, 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 you understand? It, it's not modern in that sense. You ask a question about religion, about God. So, okay, there's no answer. I mean, I may not be answered the answer If I go into the Beit HaMikdash and I'm overwhelmed by the presence of God, so there's no longer a question, right? The, the, question, the question is gone. I, I can't answer the question. I cannot answer the question, but there's no question. Because here I am, standing before God. I mean, okay. Well, how did God get there? What's going on? What's the Beit HaMikdash? I don't know the answer to any of those questions. But I do know, I do know that God is there. And if God is there, if God is there, there's no question, we made it. So that's what, that's what uh, uh, Rav Nachman said. If you have that insight, if you're able to have that, and that, he gave that insight a name, and the name for that insight, according to Rav Nachman, is Emunah. If you believe, there's no question. That was Rav Nachman's position. But he understood that it was possible not to believe. That the way the world was created made it possible not to believe. <coughs> okay. Uh, okay, that's enough. <coughs> now, after the Churban Abayat, Churban Bayat Sheni, after the Churban Bayat Sheni, we lost our attachment to the presence of God. Of God. Right? Remember, we skipped the Churban Baicheni, 70 CE. The temple was destroyed. And we don't have a temple. We don't have a temple. It's true that the Gemara says that the synagogue became a Mikdash Me'at. And you have to think about what that might mean. But you know that a synagogue is basically a place that enables you to pray, to do the mitzvah of tefillah. And it's not a place where you necessarily feel the presence of God. <coughs> now it's true that a lot of shuls on the Aaron Kodesh, the right Dalif name me Ata Omeid, as though it was a davar pashut, a simple thing that everybody is standing there before God. But if it was so simple that everybody was standing before God, they wouldn't have to write that on the Aaron Kodesh. They have to write that on the Aaron Kodesh because people don't remember that they're standing before God and they don't 
recognize the fact that they're standing before God, and therefore, and therefore you have to write it. So the Beit Knesset is not exactly a replacement for, for the Mishkan, for the Mikdash. So that <coughs> while it's true that in these Psukim that we read, it was obvious that B'nai Yisrael needed the Mishkan. They needed the Mishkan, the, the, the Mikdash. They had to uh, place themselves before God. They had to carry on the the uh, the the Matan Torah of Har Sinai that the Ramban discussed later, Rabbi Nimshai, as we said. <coughs> what happened after the Mikdash was destroyed? <coughs> so there are modern modern commentaries that try to deal with this question. I mean, modern from commentaries. And what I'd like to do is read, uh, like, learn with you a second half of chapter 34 in the book that's called Tanya. You know, written by the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, right, the Balatanya. The Balatanya is uh, not an easy book, not an easy book to learn, and not an easy book to comprehend. Uh, it, it's uh, blessed with a uh, outstanding English translation. Uh, you can, everybody can get the book. Uh, you just find your local Lubavitcher Shaliach, and you tell him that you're thinking of intermarrying. <laughs> and that the only thing that could save you is a tanya. And you'll get a tanya in every size possible immediately. You know, it will be right there. Or you can go to a regular bookstore and buy it, which is, you know. But it's a really a wonderful edition of a wonderful work. I mean, it's. Uh, so I think what we'll do is we'll read it in English, if I remember how to read English. And then I'll reference the Hebrew. We'll do it the opposite way. You know. Who's, so this, who's the translator? What? Who's the translator? The translator's name. Rabbi. He was a rabbi in Memphis. A Chabad rabbi. Uh, let's see. Old age has a variety of problems that come in, but names... The first thing to go. Well, you know the bigger ones. Don't get it. Who wrote the translation? Oh, it's a terrific. It's a very good translation. It's a very good translation. There are other translations, by the way, commentaries in modern Hebrew by. Uh, I mean, it's you know Chassidut and uh, and uh, <coughs> of different kinds. Classical works of Chassidut are. Actually, quite the rage, rage today. Rage. It's the insane. What? It's the insane. Yeah, it's, it is. It is. I see the sub of that. The insane. The insane. Is it Man- Manus Friedman? Yeshiva's insane. No, no, not Manus Friedman. Manus Friedman's a lecturer. They, who translated it? You know, you know, Simcha, remember Simcha came to Shia until he got married? No, there's no connection. Shalom Yaakov Halevi Who? Shalom Yaakov Halevi what do you mean, Simcha? Simcha. Simcha Landa, right. No, I just like him. Where's he from, Simcha? Not Nashville. Nashville. Nashville, that's where he was, a rabbi. Oh. The rabbi who translated oh. the Tanya... Oh, that's right. He uh, was from I, Nashville. What's his name? And it wasn't Aunt Elvis Presley. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Nashville. this is what it says. Nashville. Nashville. Listen to this. 
something of this union the Israelites experienced at Mount Sinai, but they could not endure it. Right? You remember? They said to Moshe Rabbeinu, you go and get the Torah, we'll stay back, you'll teach us the Torah. We can't go through this again, this idea that we've, we've done. As the rabbis say, at each divine utterance, their souls took flight. Now this is, uh, uh, if you look at the Hebrew, the first line towards the end, Kemamar Azal, Shal Kodibur Parchanishmatam. Every time they heard one of the Aserita Dibrot, they fainted away, and they sort of died. And then they rejuvenated to, to go to the next debate. But it was so overwhelming of an experience that the Chazal describe it as parchanavsha. He says, at each divine utterance, their souls took flight, which is an indication of the extinction of their existence of which we spoke above. It's as though this experience that they had at uh, at Har Sinai, the exact experience could not be repeated because it would be like genocide. They'll all be dead. Right? So that the experience indicated that they can't have that experience somehow. And then he says, therefore, God at once commanded that a sanctuary be made for him with the Holy of Holies for the presence of his Shekhinah which is the revelation of his blessed unity, as will be explained later. So that instead of the event of Harsinai, with the with the, the shofar blowing and the, and the the noise and the clouds and the, the that, that whole experience, that was translated into the sanctuary, into that into the Mishkan. And and people were able, people were able to maintain the memory of Har Sinai through the experience of the Beit Hamikdash. The Beit Hamikdash, in the Beit Hamikdash, they had this experience of the presence of God, and that reminded them, verified, validated, made it certain for them that Har Sinai had actually taken place. So it wasn't only. It wasn't only that their fathers told us, the Rambam says, that the fathers told them that they were at Har Sinai and this is what happened. <coughs> but they were able to experience something which for them was akin to what they'd heard about Har Sinai. Which is the... Uh, right. But since the temple was destroyed, and here the Balatanya is talking about our problem, so what, what happened afterwards? How can you live without the temple? If you needed the temple in order to have the experience of the presence of God, which in turn reminded you of the experience of Matan Torah, what happened after the temple was destroyed? The Holy One, blessed be He, has no other sanctuary, established place for His habitation that is for His blessed unity than the four cubits of Halakha. If you look at the Hebrew, here, the third line, the middle of the line, you see those words? The four, in, in English they always say cubits. 
I don't know what a cubit is. I guess it's it's like a two dimen- a three dimensional, not a two. But to say, in other words, halacha, the word halacha, we know what halacha is. The arba amot of halacha means that there is a place in the world where God is found, <coughs> even though the Beit Hamikdash has been destroyed. And where is that place? Where is that place? That place is in the four amot, and that's the reason that Chazal used this linear measure. But what do you for amot of halacha? It's a, what do you call that? A, a non sequitur. Halacha doesn't have four amot, it doesn't have ten amot, it doesn't have any amot. How can you speak about halacha? You could say halacha is good, it's complicated, it's difficult, is is elevated. <laughs> you could say anything you want, almost about halacha. What can you not say? That there are four Amot of halacha. <coughs> There's no four amot of halacha. So he explains. You go back to the English. That is for his blessed, the Holy One, blessed the sanctuary uh, uh, or established place with habitation. So we're talking about the replacement of the mikdash, and the replacement of the mikdash, according to the Balatanya, is arba amot shel halacha. The halacha creates a place. Where, where you study, the place that you're studying Torah is the place of God. That is, that is for his blessed unity in the four cubits of halacha, which is blessed will and wisdom, the body and the laws which have been set out for us. In other words, Torah is the will of God. It's, it's, it's God's thoughts about things. So if you learn those thoughts, you create a place. And even though that place is not made of brick and mortar, and even though that place <coughs> doesn't have fancy rooms in it, nevertheless, it is again a place for God in this world. Therefore, uh, after contemplating deeply on the subject of this self-nullification discussed above according to his capacity... Let the person reflect in his heart as follows, that as much as my intelligence and the root of my soul are of too limited a capacity constitute a chariot that abode for the blessed unity and perfect truth, since my mind cannot at all conceive and apprehend it with any manner or degree of apprehension in the world, not even a iota of apprehension of the patriarchs and the prophets of this be so, I shall make for him a tabernacle and habitation by engaging in the study of the Torah as my time permits. In other words, even though I am really not capable of understanding, even though, this Rav Nachman Abraxel loved this, he said, even though I can't understand it, I can still create a place. I can still make a place for the divine to inhabit. And that place is the place where I sit and learn Torah. So learning Torah, <coughs> learning Torah, you have to understand, learning Torah for the, for the Balatanya replaced, replaced the Mishkan, replaced the Mikdash. And even though we pine for the Beit HaMikdash and we daven for the Beit HaMikdash all the time, nevertheless, nevertheless, we have to have an intermediary solu- intermediate solution. We can't live without this connection, without being connected. So that connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu comes through the, 
learning of halacha, learning halacha is what we call learning Torah, and that learning of Torah creates a space, and in that space you can find God. The second thing that the Balatanya is saying, which I think is is uh, is very important, <coughs> is that Talmud Torah is democratic. Talmud Torah, there's no one who says that the space that is created by somebody with a very high IQ is less relevant than the space that was created by a person who is less talented and less imaginative. But in fact, just as the mitzvah of Talmud Torah is democratic, in, in, in other words, they could have said, like, uh, like we would say about uh, nuclear physicists, you know, if you haven't got it, you haven't got it. Go drive a cab. I mean, are you going to be a nuclear physicist? I mean, who would think such a thing? I mean, it's crazy. You divide up the world between the more talented, the less talented, the cleverer, the less clever. But there's a mitzvah of Talmud Torah. Why is there a mitzvah of Talmud Torah? There shouldn't be a mitzvah of Talmud Torah. Talmud Torah should be for people who are very smart. People are very smart. Certainly today, you know, you could, uh, the communication, no problem. Everybody knows everything that everybody else said. So, that's enough. But no, there's a mitzvah. And the mitzvah of Talmud Torah is there, is democratic. Everybody is obliged. And everybody can be successful with or without art scroll. <coughs> and everybody can make a Dalit Amot of Halacha. Because Dalit Amot of Halacha doesn't mean you're solving the problem. It means you believe that the presence of God is with you. And that's a different... That's a different matter. And there's no reason to think that anybody or any group of people, any group of uh, individuals have some kind of a, a, a way of, of getting that more than anybody else. So that's what the, that's what the Balatanya, that's what the Balatanya said. So if there was a question, if we asked that question, what happened after the destruction of the temple? After all, the temple seems to be something of, of, of great importance. Great significance, right? So the the uh, the Balatanya says, the Balatanya says that uh, that the Dalat Amotel Halacha, the Talmud Torah, the Mitzvah Talmud Torah is what makes it possible to maintain <coughs> that relationship with Hakadosh Baruch Hu. And you all know that Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm sorry, the Avram Avinu, when God promised him Eretz Yisrael, he said, "Bama idah." How should I know? How will I know? What did he mean according to the Gemara? And Rashi quotes the Gemara. He says, well, what if my children are not worthy? What if my children and grandchildren are not worthy of Eretz Yisrael? What if they pollute the land? What if everything... So and so they'll be kicked out, So what happens to the promise? So what's the answer the Gemara in the Gemara in Ta'anit? The Gemara says, okay, but as long as they will learn the Torah of the Mikdash, they will have a right to Eretz Yisrael. So that learning Torah replaces the Mikdash if the people are torn asunder from it, from the Beit HaMikdash. For whatever reason, the determination in heaven is that the time has come to punish B'nai Yisrael, and they're torn away from from the Mikdash. So they have only Talmud Torah. 
to help them until the next stage of history. Okay, have a good shot.